0: Then I started thinking about the visual-spatial world, and we can recognize thousands of faces. We can't begin to describe them. Same with emotions. So those concepts that are so crucial and central to our lives, aren't verbal concepts.
1: This is Glenn Murphy with NC Systema, and this is Systema for Life.
2: Hey, uh, Glenn Murphy and Barbara Tversky, welcome to Plant Yourself and, I guess, Glenn, to the um, Systema for Life podcast as well.
1: Lovely to be here.
2: Yeah. So, um this is an exciting conversation about um Farber your book Mind in Motion, how action shapes thought, and I would love if Glenn you introduced me to the book and helped yeah. me think through a lot of the concepts. I'd love for you guys to just take it away and I'll I'll jump in as as my curiosity uh dictates.
1: Yeah, great. And uh Burroughs, so wonderful to, to meet you today and to, to catch you, uh, see the personality behind the words. It's just, uh, just incredible for me reading the book and just sort of seeing how much richness and depth was in there. You, you can read it four times and still come out with new things, I find. So highly recommend immediately anybody who hasn't read it, get your nose in it as soon as possible. Um, so the central concept uh, of the book is that spatial thinking is the foundation for thought, right? It might not represent the entirety of all thought and how it comes about, but it's the foundation, and that's um, in some ways that's quite a revolutionary idea. And in some ways, it's been around for a little while. And I'd like to get into the details a little bit, if we can. Um, but first off, what what inspired you to write the book? What need did you see that this book filled?
0: So it goes way back to when I was a graduate student. I was always interested in the visual spatial world. I grew up in in a family of artists and I dabbled with art and um, architecture. It was something I was always aware of and and enjoyed. And when I got to graduate school, it was dominated by language. Mm. Everybody thought thinking was in language or language-like propositions. So that view came from philosophy. It came from linguistics. It came from psychology. It even came from introspection, that when we think about thinking or talk about thinking, we use words. Mm. But then, where do the words come from? The thoughts yeah. precede the words, and the thoughts are we can't grasp. And then I started thinking about the visual-spatial world, and we can recognize thousands of faces instantly. We can't begin to describe them. Yeah. Same with emotions. So those concepts that are so crucial and central to our lives aren't verbal concepts. And then I started thinking about the brain and half the cortex is in one way devoted to space because space is multimodal. It's Mm. not just visual. We know about space from hearing and from touching and from all of our sensory modalities. Half the brain is devoted to space. Mm. Yet another, um, babies do incredibly intelligent things before they can speak. And Mm. when they start speaking, everything seems to begin with "ba." Bus, banana, bottle, right? Mm. And so you hear them say, ba, ba, ba. They're not, it's not a deep dive into their thoughts. Mm. So when they're doing intelligent things, animals are doing incredibly intelligent things. So where it, that thinking can't be language.
3: Sure.
0: So it appears <laughs> me that, that there was a whole, that space preceded language, spatial knowledge preceded language. And that, if anything, language was built on that, and not vice versa. And so for many years, the work I was doing, I kind of, post hoc, it looks um, very planned, the the research program I eventually carried out. But it was really quite intuitive, finding areas of spatial thinking, visual thinking, that language couldn't do. and showing those one after another. But it became coherent after a while and then intentional. But it, it seemed to me that we needed to understand how people thought it and dealt with space, mm-hmm. that that was different from language and important. But because it was space, people marginalized it. They thought it's like music or smell or something as peripheral. It's not central cognition mm. and I think what cinched it as central cognition was the Nobel Prize awarded to O'Keefe and the motors for their work on finding place cells in the hippocampus and an area next door that mapped the place cells spatially.
3: Mm. And
0: that caught the attention of people if it's in the brain in that organized way. yeah that's really quite remarkable, then maybe it's not so peripheral, maybe it's... So that, I think, changed things on the agenda of scientists. Now there are huge numbers of people looking at at the brain substrates and more paying attention to the behavioral. But it's been a struggle um, to get recognition. um, Yeah. I'm really gratified that, that you found it. And I'm wondering, how? How did you happen to come across that book?
1: And um, to be honest, it was literally just a recommendation after having read um, other works in cognitive science. And they're like, if you like that, you might like this. So I'm, a, I'm very ashamed to say that an algorithm probably steered me towards oh. this book rather than my deep dive into research and finding out exactly who was leading all of it. And I think I've been nodded towards it a few times, but I just never fully appreciated the depth of the work. i would come across little bits and pieces. Um, I, I think probably one of the big steering... Um, I'm just trying to think, there was another book that I was, and that referenced it quite heavily, I'll have to pull it back in and put it in the show notes at the end of it, but there was one book in particular that was talking about spatial awareness and some of the research that you'd done and how that fed into the central concept of the book. I I think actually it might have been um, one about Aboriginal thinking and how people uh, in, Aber- in indigenous cultures uh, use kind of sand talk and spatial metaphors in order to describe um, movements, of things through time, in order to describe ecosystems, like to map things in different ways. And the argument was that we've lost something in our kind of obsession with words and getting things across verbally and that in some ways we're very very kind of stupid compared to some (laughs) indigenous cultures who are extremely well integrated into their ecosystems and seem to transmit kind of practical knowledge very very quickly using images and just kind of circumventing the verbal kind of that way Um, and i think that might have been it i can't remember the exact book but it was it and that kind of set me to thinking like okay what have we lost and what did we have and Surely, especially before the printing press and 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 where oral cultures were you know pretty widespread, but still people didn't rely solely on words all the time. There was a lot more gesture, there was a lot more um action and and also, if you think about kind of the cradle of civilization and anywhere in Africa now there's thousands and thousands of languages right it's the, and any given person has trouble communicating even with somebody about. 40 miles away, you know, as there's so many different dialects. And the gesture and action and body language must have preceded the ability to make contact with anybody um, beyond your immediate kind of tribe and area in order to try and kind of, I don't know, find support, make trade, build community, do all the things that we most certainly would have had to do as humans, right, through history. So there were so many little threads that were tied together that made sense. And it's, it was kind of the same thing. I, was, I think I've been kind of chasing this little... God-in-the-gaps argument of, like, oh, no, we, we think in words, you know, and I've read um, some linguistics and other stuff like that, and, you know, Chomsky and you know, Stephen Pinker and different things like that that seem to suggest some of the opposite along the way, and it never really resonated with me, and then as soon as I started reading in these other ways, it really did. Um, so I'm interested in, so when you said that you met some resistance or it was difficult to kind of get it, and then eventually you hit some sort of speed, um, some hump, and now people are kind of accepting the ideas a lot more. What was the lines of the resistance? Was it just that people were so convinced that verbal language was so much more important um, that it held some other kind of level of importance in the brain relative to just simple space and coordination?
0: Yeah, no, I think it's sad that, that, that it was sidelined. It wasn't so much resistance, although mm. i got a lot of resistance from early work that I've done showing that our concepts of space are distorted and yeah that met a huge amount of resistance, and within the spatial cognition community, it's still resisted.
3: Sure.
0: Um, yeah, and I think they're they're just myopic. Um, yeah. Use a visual metaphor, right, <laughs> For thinking. No, I think it was more that it was ignored. Mm. and then many things happened at the same time some people in studying language started studying gesture and yeah. gesture had been thought to be the bastard child of language that it was an add-on and irrelevant because after all we can communicate on the telephone we can communicate through written language so who needs gesture mm. and who needs intonation of voices and Um, and that sort of thing, which isn't in written words. So I think, and gradually, the work on gesture became to be recognized partly through studies of a colleague of mine at at Columbia, um, who asked people to sit on their hands, Mm. and then describe things in space, and people couldn't find words. So
1: his, Especially if they're Italian, presumably. So.
0: <laughs> we can get to it. And, um, it, 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 it. Even then, it was gestures are for finding words; mm. they aren't for thinking.
3: Mm.
0: It, I think by now, my friend and colleague Bob Krauss is convinced that um, gestures are for thinking, independent of language, and maybe prior to language, but. Mm. The inroad came with gestures are, are needed to find words, mm. and now that looks a little curious because it's so clear that gestures help my thinking and help your thinking. Sure. but we can do without them, and it, 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 the miscommunication is um, is greater when you don't have intonation and these analog channels that are yeah. different from words. And um, that's another remarkable feature of the human mind, is that we can use language to imagine space and to imagine movement in space. So I can give you directions how to get somewhere, or in your case, what to do with your body, yoga, and that Mm. that sort of thing. I can tell you in words how to do it. I can even tell you in words what you should be feeling inside Mm. your body, and that helps draw attention to it. So uh, it, it, the mind, the human mind, can, can trade off, not completely, mm. but because we can describe physical situations in words, and then we can use words to understand real yeah. physical situations. So the human mind is quite remarkable in that, in that trade-off. And again, that was something we studied early on That we can describe elaborate spaces and people can imagine them and can imagine moving in them and can imagine changing them just from language but sure. even that relied on knowing about space yeah otherwise we couldn't have made those connections hooking one after so another thread on language, and your comment about Aboriginals, and I think I know where that research is coming from. I think it's coming from Steve Levinson's lab, um, looking at spatial cognition in many different communities, and and yeah. arguing that they're, they're um, they use um, an external frame of reference, and that they're better located than we are. Yeah. But even there, there and in our own language, we see the the use of spatial terms in describing almost anything else mm. that we certainly share with, with people who don't go to school, and we mm. we share it with. So, you know, the the holidays are coming up, or the hol- we're approaching the holidays. Yeah. So, or the holidays are behind us those are all spatial terms we've grown closer or far mm. apart everything's in chaos or upheaval those mm. are our spatial or visual or sometimes auditory terms and our language is filled with them it's very hard to speak yeah anything without using spatial words um, to describe more abstract concepts
1: hi folks glenn here As Systema for Life approaches its 100th episode, I'd like to take a minute to thank everyone who has contributed to the show, all our listeners, and to everyone who's offered requests, encouragement, and feedback along the way. I also need to ask a quick favour. We have already enjoyed two years of high-quality interviews, insights, and ideas on Systema for Life. We'd like to keep the show going, and we want to keep it open to all, but we need your help to do it. It takes time, effort, and more than little cash to produce a podcast more than two grand a year at current hosting and production rates. We have no paid advertising and we do it all off our own backs with help from listeners and generous supporters like you. So if you're a fan of Systema for Life and you get real value from the ideas and the conversations we create, then please take a few minutes now to subscribe at www.ncsystema.com support Support at whatever level you feel like you can afford. Even $3 or $5 a month is a help. Think of it as buying us a beer or a cup of coffee once a month for our troubles. So visit ncsystema.com support and use the buttons on the page to select your preferred monthly or annual support level. You'll receive a confirmation on sign up and you can cancel at any time. I thought one really interesting concept in the book was that you pointed out that um, human communication systems are redundant, right? That we have these But we have what people know and understand to be body language. People understand that your legs do certain things, and I teach this in stress-proof courses too, how like, you can talk to somebody if you're maybe catching them on the way out of the room or something. If they don't really want to talk to you, they'll turn their torso towards you, but their feet are still pointing towards the exit where they want to go, right? And they can feign interest, and they'll be like, that's fascinating, I really do want to talk to you about that. But their their legs are saying, I want out of this conversation. And if you can learn to read those cues, then you can understand the person better. And this idea that um, because the body has redundancy, that you can lose one thing and catch up with another, as you said, and the, the key examples being that people who are blind um, can get full context of emotion from intonation of voice and things like that. They can infer it, um, but so can deaf people. Right? Deaf people can read um, your emotions from gestures and facial expressions and body movements a lot more. Um, my sister is um, deaf completely in one ear and partially in the other, and she lip reads so well that you wouldn't know that she was deaf, and the, the only way that you can actually not communicate with her is that if you scratch your face or something. It in between that, like her voice doesn't it give it away, nothing does, right? And, and so she's amazing at that, and people just don't know, they have no idea, right? And so that's, that's amazing to me. But I think what most people probably intuit is that, yeah, we have body language, and yeah, we have these things that we do to communicate, but they're hierarchically they're underneath words and language. Like, given the choice, we would always use words, and that we only resort to space and gesture when we have to, we don't have words, right? I feel like there's like a, an implicit bias there in most people's way of thinking. But in a, in a very real sense, what you're saying is that because the spatial thinking precedes the ability to form the words and form the thoughts and then get them back out again, it's, it's never really independent of space. Is that Am I right in thinking that or is that um, an overgeneralization?
0: I think you're right. And it, it's, we aren't aware of the, the gestural and international um, effects on our, of others on our own thinking. But in a yeah. way, we aren't really aware of choosing words. Mm-hmm. They pop in our heads. Now, if you're speaking a language you don't know well, you're aware of looking for words. But once yep. you're fluent in a language, the words just come the way the gestures come, and, and, and the intonation comes, and we aren't aware of it, and we aren't aware of it in other people that we're attending. Yeah, And and that's changing the meaning. I can change the the meaning of a sentence by an ironic, you know, she's beautiful.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Incredulous. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: It it totally changes um, the meaning. And I talk to my lawyer friends and say, how can you rely on transcripts? Mm. Uh, court proceedings, or transcripts of anything. They, they, they're they're losing so much of the meaning because so much yeah. of the meaning is somebody's hesitant, somebody's frightened, all mm-hmm. of that. Somebody's excited. We pick that up in in a way that isn't captured by words at all. But I think we don't have awareness. And you make me think that some of the reason why we're so much aware of words, is they're harder to understand. Mm. That that decoding them, and decoding syntax, the words in this complicated syntax, that in spoken languages is not a pound. We interrupt ourselves, we break syntax all the time. So that comprehending a sequence of words is just so much harder, takes so mm. much more cognitive effort. than than, than unpacking intonation or unpacking gesture, that that happens almost effortlessly, um, that we're embodying it. And some of that embodiment might be the internal mimicry that we have, that human beings naturally mimic um, other people's other people 's gestures other people 's facial expressions other people 's body positions other mm-hmm. um, somebody straightens up and meeting; yep. everybody straightens up, somebody yawns, everybody yawns that those things those aspects of communication are mimicked in our bodies so quickly that um, and that helps the understanding that mimicry, motor resonance is sometimes called. The mirror system. Mm. So, and with words, and we certainly do some of that. There is a whole theory with evidence that we understand words by attempting to replicate them in our brains. Mm. And I have a good friend, brilliant person, who, he's like many of us, not not 25 anymore. Um, and when we speak, he's saying what I'm saying. So if I am mm he's saying what I'm saying it, out loud I hear it and mm. I think that's a way by articulating it himself he's understanding it better so some of us do that implicitly but I think that mimicry of other people helps us understand and it's more immediate with these so-called embodied um, sure. types of behavior than it is with the verbal
1: Gotcha. Howie, I think you had a question about resonance, right? Motor resonance we were talking about before.
2: Um, well, I mean, I, th- I think of a lot of this in terms of sort of our evolutionary survival strategies. So, you know, that we have the same um, you know, internal wiring, let's say, as the the bucks and the gazelles at the watering hole who all have to be attuned to each other for the group to survive, right? So that's, it's, it makes sense to me that we would be Uh, natural readers of posture, of energy, of gesture, uh, of sound, you know, sound uh, preceding language. I mean, so I I guess partly... It feels like, especially like, I'm reading um, pages 184, 85, where you, in case you haven't memorized, oh, is there going to be a test?
1: Well, I didn't realize was going to be a test
2: <laughs> in the hardcover edition. You have a game where you list all these words, and you ask us to come up with a literal and essentially a, a metaphorical use of the word, like "here" or "crumble," right? That. The fact that, like, it feels like a con that language is trying to pull on us to make us say that language is the most important thing and it obfuscating these, the, the physiological basis of our survival. And at the same time, every single word is, tell, is pointing to this thing. And it reminded me I don't, want, I don't want to exclude Glenn here, but another Hebrew word that comes to mind is the word olam which means world, like the universe, everything. And it also means hidden, that which, that which is implicate and not uh, not manifest. And I'm thinking, like, like how, we, are we using language to hide the fact that language is less important? It reminds me of a, one of my favorite comedians, Emo Phillips, had this line. He said, I used to think that the brain was the most important organ in the body. Then I realized who was telling me that. <laughs> 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 right, like so, like is is has language tried to pull a fast one on us to hide its dependence on on, on
0: embodiment? Yeah, and I, I like the the way you opened, especially. um gazelles need to understand other gazelles, and it, it, I think this is an understudied aspect of humanity. We cognition, even social cognition, has been so much between the ears and and the brain that's telling us that it's the most important organ. And joint action, coordinating with other people has, has been neglected and that's changing. I think that's one of the most exciting research areas is looking at how people coordinate and even looking that people can't not coordinate you're sitting next to somebody and your simple job is to press buttons when certain lights come up in the computer and the person next to you has to do the same thing. But their mapping is different. They do different things with their fingers when the lights come up. If their mapping is different, you're slowed down. <laughs> if their mapping is the same, you're speeded up. You can't see their screen. It's It's a kind of... You can't help but be aware of the other people and what they're doing. You think in a waiting room for physicians, people automatically make room for each other, move aside, adjust their behavior in every situation. Grand Central, now it's empty, mm-hmm. but um, uh, before March, um, it was packed with people who almost never collided. Mm-hmm. So, in. We make those decisions instantly. We see somebody's in a hurry. We make way um or somebody's disabled. we slow down um so there's a whole set of of social norms of when I'm aware of this as a woman who goes first, and there are cultures where the man goes first, and there are cultures where the woman goes first hmm. so um it's it, but and those things happen. So even babies, you look at, at, at how do you interact with babies, and the baby says, yeah, and you say, yeah, and the baby says, yeah, and you keep imitating each other, and then you turn it into a game. After you've got that going, you say, yeah, yeah, and wait for the baby to do it twice. So <laughs> that, and, and it's fun. It's a game, but it's teaching the baby a lot. It's teaching the baby to coordinate their actions with you, which they're naturally wired to do. And it's teaching them to trust you. So you roll a ball back and forth. And the baby doesn't want to give you the ball. But the baby learns you're going to give it back. And then they give it to you and they give it back. So you learn trust. And those simple games set the... Really s- coordinating in time and space, doing the same thing, like rolling a ball back and forth, doing complementary things where you're clapping and each one is doing slightly different things or I give you something and then take it. So complementary, those are the basis of human cooperation. <laughs> so,
3: so I've got,
1: yeah, I've got a really, sorry.
0: Yeah, go ahead. Uh-
1: I've got a really interesting aside on this one, and um, again, I mentioned earlier that we I teach kind of like a, a martial arts practice or like a, a way of um, understanding other people through movement, essentially, and um, and the methodology is um, Russian, it's from Systema, and it's very interesting because it's informed by Soviet era physiology and uh, psychology, and some of it from Leonard Bernstein and his work on how um, dexterity develops and all of those things and the kind of areas or levels of complexity in how we interact with each other. And one of the key drills that we do, we call the flocking drill. And so if I describe this to you, maybe you can give me your take on on what's going on in, in a sense, is that we have maybe 10, 12 people in a room, and they're all walking in a circle in the same direction to begin with. And then I just tell everybody to pick a central point in the room and walk through that point. And to the other side of the circle and then when you get to the imaginary circle boundary turn around and walk back And everybody walks through the circle and the first time it's kind of self-conscious and it's like being a grand central station like oh excuse me and everybody does like the tango where they both dodge the same way and within literally five or ten seconds and how I can attest to this because he's done this drill many times as well everybody just starts flocking like birds as soon as you stop trying to pay attention to any one person you defocus your vision and you stop attempting to focus on individual things uh, or people you just naturally flock and move through people if you just imagine you have somewhere to be you can just do this drill and in indefinitely and nobody hits anybody else. The only person that hits anybody else is somebody who's feeling stressed or self-conscious and they're kind of too wrapped up in themselves. So if you kind of seed control, of your mind and your body to this, this spatial sense and just trust it, then it manifests itself very, very quickly. But, uh, and the basis of this self-defense form that we have is that actually most of the time what people do, if, you, if you're physically approached or threatened, usually you either freeze, right, standard fight, freeze, or flight thing, and you stay still and that makes you a target, um, or you clash with it, um, or you just run away, like this way. And the basis of our methodology is essentially just in training, like you entrain your body to the other person. If they step slightly to the right to try and get an angle, you kind of do the same thing. And what this does is not just create kind of better angles for escaping or moving or fighting. It actually makes the other person in an odd way feel like you're, you shouldn't be fighting anyway. It makes them feel relaxed because you're not behaving in the typical ways that you would expect if there's an aggressive encounter. And this enables you to control the person without using as much physical force. So in that, in that kind of way... In, the, in your book, you kind of break down different uh, areas of the brain that relate to different aspects of spatial cognition, right? And there's one in which we label objects and things in our environment. There's one where we um, sense and label internal sensations in the body, like the boundary within your skin, right? Um, and then there's another which just takes in the scenery around you. And provided that nothing changes, we're kind of fine with that, and that creates change blindness and a bunch of other things too, right? We, we just we say, okay, I'm in the gym or I'm in the garden I know where I am and how I'm supposed to behave. Now I can focus on other things and I, I just ignore everything else. Um, but what's happening in that kind of, in that interaction is you're noticing other people, right? You're noticing their bodies and their changes and their directions. Um, and you're adjusting yourself on the fly to this. Now, this, in terms of calculations, if you had to stop and think about all of these things or your brain, well, surely the processing speed would be ridiculous. I and mean, I can't imagine somebody programming AI robots to do this very Effectively, you know, or something like that. So, what's actually happening? What What's the primary mechanism when people do that when they flock, like effectively? Yeah,
0: I'm wondering what you mean by flock, but
1: um, I it's, it's not moving the same way. It's moving around each other, as but without without. Um, so, you're acknowledging the other person's body and their movement. And I think you mentioned in the in the book that there are different areas for bodies that are static versus a body in motion, right? We see that in a different slightly way. So, is that what's happening? Do we see control to that one part?
0: Right. And and again, that's going to be on the level of, of perceptual motor coupling without okay. anything elaborate that is controlled thinking. Right. Mm. And so it, you confuse me on flocking because I can't help but think of birds all going, oh, sure. a school of fish, and that's quite different. I mean, Maybe
1: mingling, mingling is a better word
0: than so. <laughs> yeah, and it is amazing how how easily and every once in a while you get I get on the crowded sidewalks of New York. You come to a person and it's you. It's not clear who's going to go which way, and then you kind of do head motions, right? Mm.
3: Just, I'll mm. go
0: this way, and you go <laughs> that way, and, and then and there are norms for that too. That in in cultures that read western cultures that read from left to right on the whole you go to uh, on the right side or drive on the right side and so you avoid people by going to the right mm. right that's a cultural thing i don't know if you'd find that with your groups merging but ah. you know, japan the norm yeah. is to go left mm. and, and you go the uh, the escalators are on your left and so forth so there's but they're aware of Western, so there's ambiguity there. And sure. in the UK, I find ambiguity, because they drive them.
1: I'm the same, yeah. I'm from the UK. I learned to drive on the left, and now I live in, I've lived in America for 13 years. There's no, I don't think there's any particular valence to it when I do the drill. It's just purely what's happening, and then just an adjustment happens, which is based on predicting the path that the other person's taking. But there's no conscious effort required to look at that path and extend it in time. It's just, we're just reading subtle cues of like which way is the shoulder moving, where do they yeah. seem to be. And it, it reminded me of the experiment you talked about in the book where um, they had basketball players watch people taking free throws and like, and you'd still shoot the video either when it was about to go in the hoop or when it was um, halfway, or even when you were about to release the ball. And even just by looking at the hand motion, they could tell with fairly good um, accuracy which shots were going to go in and which weren't. So we learned to read these subtle cues on a level that we don't even really understand. And the the more I've taught and trained in this method, the more I've realized that it's a, it's a series of undoing, that you're actually trying to carve away the layers of... Extraneous thought that are getting in the way of us doing these things. It's almost like our innate ability to move through our environment, and um, that we've enjoyed probably for thousands of years, is being suppressed by this kind of. Um this insistence that we have to stop and think about everything and consider it very, very carefully <laughs> in minutiae kind of things. There's something
3: like that going on. I think so. I
0: don't know how much of it is suppressing language? Is learning new skills
3: mm-hmm.
0: that you haven't learned? And the martial arts would be an example. And I, I just want to go back to avoiding people on the streets. Sure. Start looking, because I know Americans go right. When when two people are meeting, there's a tendency to go right, and I Mm. I feel that when I go to Japan, I'm wanting to move to the right of people coming to me, and they're wanting to move to the left, and then we collide. Okay. Mm. Japanese. Um, Mm. So count it. I mean, in in, in the streets of London, everywhere it says, "Look right, look left." Sure. Mm-hmm. Exactly because that looking behavior, crossing the street, which we're not born with, right? Sure. That's
1: primarily for French people who come over. I grew up in uh, Kent, right, 20 miles from France, and people would come across on on the train or not even driving pedestrians, and then they would go into the road, look the wrong way, and then get mown over by a car. So they painted that on all the streets to stop Europeans from yeah. the mainland getting run over. In,
2: in, in English,
1: though, not in French. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you've got to keep imperialism. I mean, so up. <laughs>
0: Uh, and, and as a generic language, no, I have a friend who was killed that way. So uh-huh. those things are, we're not born with, but we learn quickly. And in many skills, like learning tennis or learning golf or learning your martial arts, you start with language until it becomes embodied. Typing, you know, by the time we're experienced typists, we don't know where the keys are. If I ask you, where's the X key? Okay, where's the X key?
2: I just moved my finger. Bottom left. Bottom left somewhere. The X key is here. It's right. on the ring, left ring finger.
0: Right. So that's the only way we know where it is. But once we were looking at the keyboard and mapping it and so on. So I think it's not so much that language gets in the way. Is those are skills that have to be learned. And they, they can take years of practice. In basketball, like the expert basketball players are reading the field, knowing where everybody is and trying to take people by their actions. Mm. But, their but, I... and, but we learn, and some of that we learn very early. So, how do I know? You know, you see babies crying when they're picked up and moved toward the bedroom. Right, they've learned that moving toward the bedroom means they're going to be taken away from the company, and they don't want to be taken away from yeah. the company. So they burst into tears, which is the only way they can communicate at that point. So, but we learn those the meanings of of those actions quite quickly, and they become automatic, like. Mm. Or, so, right. yeah. I mean, and and they have to. Otherwise, I mean, you must. And the people that over intellectualize, like what key in the piano, and should I play it soft or sharp or quick, or even in your martial arts, the people that over intellectualize and don't let go, and yeah. yeah, and let their bodies do the learning. I mean, I did enough mm. gymnastics as a kid. That standing on my hands, I know that the body—I'm not going to control it. The body's going to make the adjustments that let me balance. Yeah, and I gotta trust the body on that. So. I
1: think so. I think there's also there's, um, there's I think there's an intuition that people have that people have different ways of absorbing or learning things, right? And maybe this comes from kind of Gardner's work on different intelligences. Parts parts. A good amount of which or some has been kind of a bit discredited since or that's been extrapolated to areas where it probably didn't apply all the way across. But I think there's this idea that people really are, that some people learn better verbally, other people learn better kinesthetically or visually and things like that. So some of the resistance that I can anticipate to this argument or when I've started talking about it, oh, it's so much of thinking is spatial and it just relies on this foundation, is people say, yeah, but not me. Like, I think in words, right? I think in words first. And you had that beautiful example in the book, I think it was Richard Feynman or something, that said that when he was taught about that, he had a friend who was a mechanic that said, you know that crazy shape um, of the crankshaft in an an engine? And the guy's like, yeah. And he goes, "Uh, what did you tell yourself when you just described that to, you know, when you just described that to yourself? Or something like that, right? And then that was his light bulb moment. That Oh, yeah, like, some thinking is just just imagery or it's just spatial and it's not verbal. uh, But it seems to me that... You could interpret your book as sort of saying proclaiming that we're all primarily visual or kinesthetic learners, right? That that we have to learn Through interaction with our environment and that feedback loop between sensation, action, Mm. and like feeling while you're doing kind of thing, and that nobody is at heart a verbal learner. Is that an overinterpretation of of kind of what you're saying in that book? Yeah, I
0: mean, there's absolutely no evidence that some people um, are verbal thinkers and some visual. There's no to say that I'm a kinesthetic learner. I mean, we all have those capacities in us. Mm. but we have those trade-offs where we can use language to imagine space we can learn language to learn how our body should be positioned and what it should be feeling and where those connections may take a long time and, but we, we can we all have some capacity for going back and forth and it's partial mm. So each, each, each modality has its own special contributions. So there are clearly things that deaf people miss, that, that blind people miss. If they're blind from birth or, or deaf from birth, there are certain aspects of the world that they might be missing. When people lose, become paraplegic, there are certain sensations and things that, that, that they may lose. So Mm -hmm. it's overlap and connectivity amongst those modalities. It's special contribution um, yeah, yeah go
2: ahead yes. yeah yeah I mean I'm, I'm interested in all in everything you've been talking about from I guess a cultural perspective and think like when you talk about the basketball players who are experts or highly trained or the typists who you know who move beyond the intellectual into the embodied there are cultures in which certain things are, are taught so that by the time you're 10 you're an expert in them so like uh, you know F- Philip uh, Raymond Gibbs did work with like embodiment and um, cognitive science around like this word the Anlo um, Ewe the, the tribe had this word "seses lalame which is sort of an internal sense of balance like feel feel and flesh inside that every one of that culture had developed and I'm, I'm questioning whether we're in a culture that has become so heavily intellectualized and disembodied in the language that we're using that, um, that, w- that we are in a sense, beginners at, we're, we're beginning typists at life. A lot of aspects that would just be intuitive and would be flowing for people who, who see themselves less as individual, because if I'm an individual Adam, and I'm separate from everything else, then I have to calculate what everything else is gonna do. Whereas if I'm entrained, which seems to be something that can come naturally. Then I'm a cell of, of an. Or, I'm, I'm part of a super organism, which I think we're, we're we're seeing a lot in like you know yoga classes, dance classes, um, things where, where people do naturally allow themselves to become entrained. And I think we have fewer and fewer of those opportunities in this world. So I'm, I'm wondering your your thoughts on that. You
0: know, and there's only so much time in a day and how much can we do and accomplish and how many skills can we acquire and people you know complain about about our phones that have um that give us directions that nobody knows how to find their way anymore and i say yeah nobody can take a square root nobody can fix a, a, a bicycle but we have other, so we give up something, but we gain certain time and efficiency from other things. There's only so much we can do. But what I will lament is, and for many, many reasons, is the absence of serious physical activity in schools, mm-hmm. of, of sports where you're playing with teams. So you learn to win, you learn to lose, you learn to cooperate with your team. You learn all those movement skills of adjusting to each other, passing to each other, those sorts of skills, which I think are really important life skills, not just physical skills. And it would, in my mind, I think, prevent a great deal of obesity um, if kids were moving and had an hour, a serious hour of P.E. every day and after school, and I grew up that way, and I don't want to sound like an old phobie that is advocating going back to, um, but I think, and I watch my children and grandchildren, and I watch city people and suburban people and the idea, I think that that doing serious physical activity in schools would would uh-huh. integrate a of obesity and keep bodies.
1: to all our listeners and Sistema fans around the world. NC Sistema have moved all of our regular classes online, live streaming group classes via Zoom, most days at 6.30 p.m. U.S. Eastern Standard Time, plus daytime classes on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Sundays. Please consider this an open invitation for you and your students to join us for the duration of COVID, to come together online, and to keep our skills and our groups alive. Payment is on a sliding scale, relative to where you're at and what you can afford. Visit ncsystema.com slash online to sign up today. Join us.
2: Well, and, and what, what, I would, what I would say your book argues is we can we, you know, I don't think anyone would, would disagree that exercise would prevent obesity, but I think what you're saying is that exercise would also make people smarter, more socially adept. <laughs> the, yeah. Then, yeah what has, that
0: they learn to cooperate. They learn to win and lose, so there's emotional experiences there that are, that are important. Um, and there's, you know, shaking hands with the opposite team after a game, congratulating them on their whatever. It's all um, healthy social skills that, that again, are going to, and they're physical, but they're going to underlie cooperation. And many businesses you see now take people off-site and try to make up for the past that didn't have enough of that in order to build teams. And they use those physical activities, cooperation and teams against each other um, to build the social skills that we all need to live in a society. We can't be hermits.
1: Can can I I ask you a question about just building on uh, Howie's point about um, that there are benefits to physical education, as you said, especially like for kids, but I think probably lifelong as well. Like, as soon as we, I mean, arguably, we we probably play sports and do things more when we're kids or just physical games. And it tails off as you go through high school. And then, unless you're a competitive sports person or you, you really enjoy playing the sport to win and to do other things, usually by the time we're 25, other things get in the way. You have families, you're like, oh, this is hard. And then you kind of, see a renaissance of that when you have kids of your own and you have to teach them how to play soccer or run around or something like that. But there's this lull in between um, between kids maybe and then after kids where we just kind of lapse into a sessile existence. And of course, this is very pertinent now with COVID and people being locked up indoors. And we send this weird kind of... Um, balance between the fact that some people have been stuck at home and so now they're finally like oh wow I really want to get outside I feel like I'm in prison I want to go for a walk I want to go for a run so there's been some small uptick in kind of physical activity from that but then there's also been the the kind of feeling of helplessness and like what's the point I'll just binge watch Netflix and sit here wait for this thing to pan out especially in America where it's never ending (laughs) where we didn't implement a decent lockdown so it's just there's no end in sight you know Um, and I'm really interested though in not just what that does for you physiologically because I think most people are like yeah if you slob around probably your cardiovascular health is going to suffer your you know bone density and other things are going to suffer um but this idea that um You've got trade-offs. This was, I think, your first law of con- cognition, right? In, in everything, you gain something, you lose something. You have to trade something off, you lose something. So in, in looking, in not noticing details in scenery, the trade-off there is meaning. Like, I know what I'm supposed to do in this area just by recognizing that it's a gym or that it's a school or whatever it's going to be. But we don't bother looking for fine details unless we're like a secret service agent and we have to spot the, the one assassin or something, right? And, and you have to be trained back into that, literally. like I've worked with people, they do that, and they're trained to see 20 things in the room as soon as soon walk into it, right? Or how many of these things could I pick up and get a swing with? Or you know, how, where are the exits immediately? You know? So that's very interesting. But this other idea that, that action moulds perception, I think it's maybe like second or third in your um, laws of cognition that are in there. And this idea that uh, how we interact with the world alters our perceptions of it. So I'm interested in this idea that movement or interacting with the world or physical education isn't just for the body. It's, and it's not even necessarily just for teamwork and learning interactions with other people. Um, how to get along with them, but it's also like it alters the the fundamental way the choices choices that you have, as you might say, the affordances, the mental affordances, increase if you have more physical affordances. Um, and you mentioned, We mentioned before we started recording about Moshe Feldenkrais and, and about his ideas about um, you know, building awareness through movement, paying very, very close attention to the feedback loop between simple actions like just lifting an arm and watching what the sensation is and putting it back down, um, the sensory feedback that you get and just kind of feeling while doing and in doing so kind of um, rewiring your nervous system, your peripheral nervous system, so that it fires a little better and a little bit more um, in more of a coordinated way, so that you become more efficient in your movements and you become what he calls more mature. And he described like uh, babies getting up to a certain level of maturity, physical maturity, walking. And then after that point, once we learn to walk, you can kind of stop there and not learn any more coordination or dexterity than that. Or you can become a gymnast or a parkour person or a capoeirista star or something, right? You can take it as far as you want. But I think he was arguing, and interestingly, Feldenkrais was also the first judo expert in the first European to get a black belt in Judo. He trained under Jigoro Kano, the founder of Judo, and brought it to Europe single-handedly and wrote this beautiful book called Higher Judo that argued that Judo and martial arts were basically a way... they were introduced by Jigoro Kano to Japan as a form of... um, not as fighting, but a physical education for kids. That's what Judo was distilled for in Japan, right? And he argued that um, the, the very, very complex dexterity required to make contact with another body, to feel the pressures that were moving to have a shared sense of gravity and move around that point and become effortless in your movements and not just kind of struggle with people, gave you not just physical affordances in the world but mental affordances that made you more psychologically pliable or more psychologically versatile have you, have you got anything to say about that, or is, it, is there anything in your research which seems to dovetail with that?
0: Yeah, no, and, and again, it's an area that needs more research. I can only point you to one study, and that mm. was done by a French cognitive s- a scientist who was a wrestler mm. and loved wrestling. And wrestling, again, is you have to interact with somebody else's body, the sense, their body, where they're scared. And and you can apply pressure where there's given that body, but it's all done through the body and through, it's very much three-dimensional thinking and complicated three-dimensional thinking because it's not flat surfaces, it's bodies and which way can they move and which way can that other body move and how can I move it? It's really quite um, a complicated set of, so he um so having good spatial ability is important for many different occupations and for many different um, computations that the mind can do one of the major ones is mental rotation imagining something in another orientation and those tests are usually visual of um, uh, comparing the orientations of two things and it's, um, there are people who are better at it and worse at it, and it, it predicts behavior in in a wide variety of situations that are more, con- uh, it predicts understanding of step da- uh, step-by-step explanations, it predicts making explanations that are step-by-step of almost any kind of phenomenon, so it's an important ability, this very simple mental rotation, and mm-hmm used as the major dependent variable for measuring spatial ability. I should say there are many spatial abilities, just like many mm-hmm. verbal ones, and that was something harking back to, are we verbal thinkers or visual thinkers? There, there are many ways to be a visual or spatial thinker, and many ways to be. Verbal ability is not unitary. Neither of them is. Um, so... We- French cognitive scientist wanted to demonstrate because he was in a wrestling aficionado, that wrestling would improve spatial abilities.
3: Mm.
0: He, he, I think it was a month of practicing wrestling for novices and a month of doing various spatial tests. And in fact, the wrestling was better at mm. spatial abilities and Oh, and he did aerobic exercise too—bicycles and that sort of thing. But the the wrestling per se was a better um, a better way to boost these mental rotation abilities. It it, it made sense because in wrestling you're imagining different. Sure.
1: rotation this way as well as this way right in, in tennis you only have to worry about am I going left to right and anticipating a ball but in wrestling you can do this
0: right <laughs> it's also what arms and legs can do and what forearms and shoulders can do so it becomes much more complicated than, than but it, in a wider so that's one way of improving the spatial abilities is wrestling but another colleague and friend, David Luton, spearheaded a meta-analysis of hundreds of studies that have attempted to increase spatial thinking. Because, again, mm. it turns out to be an important predictor in success in math, in success in science, and in other fields. Mm. So that it, it, and it's not taught in school. Mm. teach reading and writing. We don't teach spatial thinking. We don't teach how to read maps. We don't teach how to understand graphs. All that needs to be taught. And Mm. so it needs to be. Um, And then there was a National Academy of Sciences report that came out strongly on that. I don't know how much of an effect it's had. But um, so it, it turns out that to increase spatial ability, wrestling helps, but many other things help. Sure. almost anything you can think of that would mm. increase spatial abilities does help increase it. And showing which things are better for all people is tricky. Yeah. This
1: just hasn't been done. And,
0: and that, so any of those things can help and probably the more you do the better. And that gets back to the issue of are there visual spatial learners or verbal learners. When educators tried, and they try each generation to pick out the students that are stronger visual-spatially or stronger verbally and match educational exercises to ability, it doesn't work. What Mm. works is giving everybody both. Mm. So variety works. Mm. And having people have many hooks to the learning, whether it's visual-spatial, maps and diagrams and graphs and also verbal explanations that having more of that helps everything yeah. and mm-hmm. that if you miss one hook you'll get another hook you'll have another so having multiple hooks and multiple modalities for thinking about anything um encourages that learning um, rather than trying to do this complicated matching
3: okay okay
1: gotcha. Howie,
0: did you have a you had the question? Um, yeah, I mean, so
2: for second law of cognition, action molds perception. The way I think of perception is basically its existence. Like what, what you perceive is like your experience, you know, your awareness, your experience of of existing, of being alive. And I think that, you know, that argues for, like, we're talking about exercise specifically. We have a very pathology-based view, like we exercise to prevent obesity, to prevent heart disease, or an attainment mentality, like, okay, well, we're going to teach people exercise so they can be better scientists, better mathematicians, more socially adept, but it feels much more fundamental that movement creates our reality, and that the, you know, sort of the more movement we do and feedback we get from it, and the more movement we coordinate with other people, sort of the, the more we become as, as beings, the more we can kind of become ourselves.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, that's interesting. So it, it depends on what we're perceiving and what actions we're doing. So I, I might get very good at basketball or I might be, get very good at walking New York City and seeing the different architectural styles and the way the streets are organized and the way people are moving. And I'm paying more attention to that. So it, it, Depends on uh, a bit. Um, you know, I have these behind me. I'm reading in the papers today that the museums are opening and very excited to go back to them. I can interact with paintings by, you know, embodying what I'm seeing, feeling what I'm seeing. So, it, it, what reality do you want to create? can do yeah. in
3: brief
0: yeah. lives, but. Sure, um, and it, you know, so it's what reality we, w- w- and walking the streets of New York or the mountains of um, Italy, um, you can be paying attention and interacting on different levels, looking at the wildflowers, looking at the geological formations. There are so many different ways of interacting. And mm-hmm. again, the variety is going to be good, but and we can train our eyes and our ears to see the birds. So it 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 the world is so rich and offers so much.
2: <laughs> right. And, yeah, and that's that's why i feel like like the atomization that I have felt around. So I sit in front of my computer and like I am an, I am a separate individual. Like um, I was reading recently about the the fake arm studies. Have you seen? You know what I'm talking about, where they they have a mirror and, two, and one arm is yours and the other is a plastic arm, and they, you know, it's in the book, I believe. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, they'll, they'll, so they can train. They can train you to to think that something that's not you is you, um, which is a you know, sort of interesting trick of empathy. But like, I mean, just politically, I see we live in such a fractured world where people don't share the same reality. I think, you know, training people to to do things together, to move together in movements and to interact with nature might ground us. It feels like it feels like just our culture is very ungrounded in what makes us healthy, happy, socially functioning humans. And I felt like there was so much in mind and motion that I interpreted as potential antidotes or potential directions for for healing.
0: Yeah, no, thank you, and right, we need, we are polarized, and we tend to, I mean, people have been saying this, we live in echo chambers, and you live on one of the coasts in America, I don't know the geography, well, the cities in the UK versus the country, and you end up talking and interacting with people who share your views and demonizing the other. So, I mean, Human beings have so much potential, both to cooperate and to fight. Mm-hmm. So, and, and we see that in history all over the place. And cooperating more is certainly good, and we emphasize globalization. But once resources get tight, you tend to go back into your own community. You're going to protect your people first and if the resources are tight, you want them for you and your people widening, and not for the other people, you see them as competitors. So those tensions both ways work on good and for bad. Um, And there have been many studies showing that when different groups that are usually at odds cooperate and work together on a common project, that they do like each other more and learn to appreciate each other's points of view or avoid them, avoid the conflicts that might come out of them. And I can give you lots of examples. There have been, unfortunately or sadly, studies that show that sometimes the opposite happens that working together with groups that you may not appreciate can actually heighten tensions so it again is subtle and depends on how the cooperation is based and how it, how it transpires but mm. you, you know it, finding ways to emphasize the cooperative aspects of humanity i think i agree are really important especially now and again some of the issue is deep is scarcity of resources and that's a sad aspect of the current situation is people ill people unemployed people and the k distribution where the rich get richer and the poor get poor and the system seems to be rigged that way um yeah and people protecting their own wealth and not wanting to share it Um, yeah how much
1: so i had a question about that as well like um do you foresee any I mean we've, our vistas have changed a lot right? for, and it's not for everybody, some people have been barely affected by this, Right? they all worked at home as bankers or like you know <laughs> things that worked on computers all the time so they just shifted location from an office to home and I know people who are actually a lot happier my friend is you know six weeks right now in the an- outer banks, North Carolina on his laptop still working for Credit Suisse because <laughs> you know why be at home working for Credit Suisse or at the office when he can be in the outer banks and like drink lagers and float in the sea every evening like after his day's work right so say so he's fine, he's doing okay like, and the self-isolation is fine for him. Other people who have people facing jobs are in a terrible state and they're just very, very um, worried about their ability to support themselves, they don't want to be reliant on other people, but they're kind of trapped in this new vista where they're stuck at home and that this is what they're looking at. How much of them um, do you foresee any kind of population level effects on limiting that personal vista and spending long periods of time in this two-dimensional focus, like just focusing on a screen and not getting that kind of shifting from place to place. Because you describe in the book how we, you know, we know how to behave when we go into a new scene. We just kind of assess the scene and we're like, oh, these are the kinds of things I, ass- I associate with being at work. Unless something has changed, I can just assume that I should get on with things this way, right? And we just kind of get on with stuff. But it seems to me now that people trying to work from home It's not the same. It's not because you you don't have those same psychological affordances when you're sitting at home as you do when you go to a place with other people who are all sharing a purpose. And the loss, not just of that place, but also of that purpose is resulting kind of a bit of like a loss of identity for some people. They're, They're feeling like aimless in the same way that you know, bereft of Google Maps, a lot of people couldn't find their way around their town anymore. It's like bereft of those routines and those places and those three-dimensional structures we built in our lives, a lot of people now aren't quite sure how they should go about their entire day. You know, they they have to try and build these artificial routines and structures just to get themselves out of bed and moving every day. And I'm not (laughs) at all speaking for
3: myself. No, I I
0: wonder about your friend in North Carolina. Especially now when there's hurricanes, um, hmm. although North Carolina has been spared this time um, for a long period of time, because hmm. most of us need that social interaction. People are complaining they can't hug each other, they can't um, joke with each other, they can't. I mean, we really miss the physical presence of other people, and many people are finding, you see, are finding ways to do that. And yeah. In bars are open and people are much too close together, and you worry about you worry about but the thirst to be with other people. So you're always going to find individuals who are really happy alone and working and don't need to be well, maybe need to be with one or two. But um, sure. yeah, I think my feeling, and I haven't looked at surveys, but from what I read about journalistic things, is that that people are really thirsty. Yeah. Three dimensional contact with people with the smells of, of other people and of restaurants and of cities and so forth. So I, and even going back to getting along with other people there, I, I'm, I know there are, that cities tend to be more liberal and tolerant than cities tend to be more diverse and more level and talented, you see in New York, and certainly in London, that I think even more in New York, we're living with people of many different races, sizes, colors, backgrounds, education, foreign, not foreign, um, and we're interacting all the time. We used to be riding the trains and buses with them. I still am, even though other people are frightened of it. So there... They, Again, resources are scarce. There's fear in the world. People retreat, and many did go to the country. I think they missed out on, on all sorts of things by fleeing. But they were, the fear overcame them, and they were many of them were protecting themselves and probably sensibly. I know many older people are more are more at risk, but. Um, Cities do tend to exactly encourage the kind of cooperation with other groups that I think we need, and they are more liberal and tolerant and wanting to share resources mm. rather than hog them than um, than cultures than situations where you're you're with only people of your own sort sure. and. And I think many people are feeling trapped and lose focus. So I, I wrote a short piece on this, and... Uh, again, coming from spatial thinking as the foundation of all thought, we have spatial spaces, real spaces that we navigate every day inside the house, outside the house. But mapped in the the brain maps our social spaces uh, and our conceptual spaces on the same structure. So we have social spaces, conceptual spaces, spaces of morals, and so forth. And, What COVID did, and sheltering in, if not being locked in, um, is disrupt all of those. How does it work? How do we get food if we can't go outside? How do we see the people we need to see and love to see? And observing people around me, after you figured out a way to get food inside your house, whether you dared in America to go out to a supermarket and buy food, or you had a Carted in. Um, once you settled that, what people wanted was their social spaces. Mm.
1: So the hierarchy and, of needs, right? Once they sorted survival, it goes back to <laughs> we need social contact, and then <laughs> and
0: the Maslowian um, hierarchy of needs that oh, I all mean, we really crave seeing the people we needed to see and zoom helped and facetime and skype and all of those media helped, but they aren't the same as being able to hug people and and be in full three dimensions but that space seemed like after the basic needs that one and even if you go back to the basics of space and the movements that are possible in space. The most elementary movement, and amoeba can do this, one cell creatures, bacteria can do it, is whether you approach something or go away from something.
3: Mm.
0: And those are in, inherently in humans, I can't speak for amoeba, inherently in humans, those are emotional.
3: Yeah.
0: You approach things you like. You retract to re- things that repulse you. They're pulling you back, and yeah. the things that attract you, that pull you toward them, are likable and emotionally positive, and so forth. So, if the basic emotions are go, if are pl- positive or negative, those are instantly reflected in spatial actions. Mm. So we approach, should we avoid. And for social things, that's the first thing. Do we approach people? Mm. Are we friendly and warm and opening, or do we turn our heads and, and walk away and avoid people? And sure. what was terrible, in a way, about the social distancing is that it taught us to and to retract from people. To move yeah. away from people if we couldn't walk to the other side of the street we turned our heads and that's it, it feels foreign to act toward people that way so we learned that very quickly i was astounded again i walked new york from day one because it was safe to be outside even if it was cold um, it was safe to the outside and i watched everybody walking to the other side of the street there were very few people in the street avoiding each other and th- that's awkward but we learned it in days yeah hours and i think we'll be able to unlearn it too and
3: hopefully <laughs>
0: <laughs> the bubbles now or that are protected where you are meeting a set of friends who've been careful and nobody's been ill, and you allow yourself to be six feet without masks with them and or six feet with masks and maybe you'll eat together so you pull down the mask so it, it, we're 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 slowly putting our toes in the water to do and hoping that. The virus won't rear its ugly head again. Um sure. has some places. But yeah, those needs of approaching people.
1: Yeah. Definitely. So so Howie, if you didn't mind me, I I had one more question that I just really wanted to get in. Um just because yeah. I understand you might be running out of time, but I just really wanted to ask this to uh, no, to Barbara on. to Bertha Bersky. That's just like uh, what um what do you feel like is the true value of this understanding of spatial thinking? Like where could the idea be most fruitfully applied? Would it be in changing the way that we learn? Would it be in changing the way that we communicate to each other? Or do you foresee that understanding this in a deeper way might kind of help shift some of the paradigms of like verbal culture to kind of like a more complete mode of thinking that consciously recognises and incorporates like images, gestures, spaces, body language, like that we don't run from it, that we understand that we're thinking, feeling, sensing, physical creatures again. Like you, uh, to, to my mind and to a lot of the people that I work with and uh, are in this cult of, of, of movement towards, you know, uh, of getting kind of back to a, a more natural way of thinking and moving and feeling. Um, this This seems to offer just a lot of uh, promise and, and that it might be an antidote to some of the things, not only that are happening right now with COVID, with isolation and stuff, but just the general trajectory of society. I mean, even beyond COVID, we're probably going to end up having our jobs, our physical jobs replaced by robots. And, you know, a lot of the physical reasons that we go and do things might go away. Um, you know, we won't be drivers anymore and stuff like that. So we're probably going to move towards a world that's probably more sessile anyway. So knowing that, um, do you feel like there's some innate value in understanding this now so that that we can kind of prepare for a world where we're still sensing, thinking, feeling, moving bodies instead of, like as how we said, brains in a jar.
0: Thanks for bringing all of that up. I mean, there are challenges to robots. I mean, self-driving cars have not been a success. Everyone, all the engineers thought it would be a snap. What's holding it up is social behavior. is not understanding how people think and robots that have to interact with people, that's again a huge challenge. It's not just learning to do the many skills that human beings do effortlessly, it's, it's also um, learning to interact with people, which we do quite effortlessly and without a great deal of conscious effort. So what I found really rewarding in this book, again, I'm kind of tied to research and a little bit reluctant to, go, to speak beyond it because of this um, training that I had early on and being a hard-headed researcher. But what's been enormously gratifying to me is seeing different cultures pick up different things from the book. So you, the two of you have picked up the importance of movement and body to thinking and to behaving and to understanding. The people in the human computer interaction world have picked it up. The people in design world have picked it up. The people in hardcore thinking and and language have picked it up because of the the language aspects. Um, People in art, I've worked with a number of artists. I'm working with one now. And they've picked it up partly through the way that their sketches speak to them. That the artists say, and architects say, that they're having a conversation with their eye and their hand, and what they <laughs> and words get in the way. They can draw and design and, and produce art, but if they're talking about what they're doing, it just interferes. It's mm-hmm. really. A well orchestrated conversation between the eye and the hand. What's on the page and understanding that quickly um, in a nonverbal way. So they've picked it up. Um, people who appreciate art and underst- are looking at museum educators, looking at the way people respond to art, again, it feels embodied that you're incorporating the emotional aspects of of artworks in your body as you see them. And so it, it, people in sports, its it's been enormously great. Clinicians, clinical psychologists, a number of them have reached out and agencies, and in, in, there's a whole movement in the Netherlands on mental spaces based on spatial cognition, and it's about clinical purpose and understanding various... Um, various um, it, 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 problems that people are dealing with, and again, so it's it's been. I, I didn't expect this. Mm. I mean, I'm enormously gratified by the number of different communities that saw something in that book that resonated with them. I mean, scientists certainly, because so much of science is thinking in models. Mm. Those models are visual-spatial and more direct than words in the same way that gestures are more direct than words. So it's given me uh, so many ideas, and I wish I had another life (laughs) and another uh, 20 graduate students and postdocs to kind of carry out the research program because there's so much left to be done. So Yeah, I'm enormously gratified by your interest and your questions.
3: Yeah. Well, well
1: and we're so grateful. I mean, for my part, just thank you so much for writing such a rich book. I think this is going to, I think it's going to be a classic, honestly. I think it's going to kind of be like a pivotal book that people look back to like, and, and say, oh, th- this was a turning point in how we think about thinking. Um, and it's like I so said, it's going gonna, it's gonna to launch so many different things. So just bravo and thank you for your dedication to, to sitting down and getting all of this in one place because I'm sure it was a Herculean effort just getting all these ways of thinking about thinking down. So, it's, uh, so thank you for the resource that you brought to the world
0: um, thank you thank you thank you yeah th- and thank you so
2: much for, for take, carving out 90 minutes of your life to share it with us and with our listeners
0: oh, it's a pleasure and I, I i get so much from your questions and your gratitude right. so thank you
2: all right well thanks a lot we'll we'll let, we'll let you know when we each publish and uh looking forward to staying in touch
0: okay and best of luck in your endeavors
1: thank you thank you very much thank you so much once again true pleasure thank you bye-bye thanks for listening if you'd like to find out more about classes workshops and seminars at nc systema please visit us online at www.ncsystema.com